0: Today's sponsor is Audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash decode.
1: Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher.
0: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode, and you're listening to Recode Decode. You may know me better as Ashley Madison, but in my spare time, I do tech reporting. And this is a podcast about the tech industry and its impact on the lives of everyday people. Our guest in today's Red Chair interview is Jeff Wiener, the CEO of LinkedIn. A former Yahoo exec who joined the workplace-focused social network in 2008, Wiener oversaw the recent $1.5 billion acquisition of lynda.com. LinkedIn has a giant user base and companies of all sizes use it to find new workers. In the new economy, LinkedIn has a more important role than many people realize. And Jeff has been doing very well as CEO there, as other companies have had more trouble in the space. Here to talk about it is Jeff, who I've known forever. Since Hello, when Cara. he arrived in Silicon Valley. a Young 12-year-old.
2: 2000, 2001. I was a little older than 12.
0: Yeah, well, you looked 12. And it has been a while. 13 or 14. You've each yeah. other 14 years. Yeah, I know. It's astonishing. Um, so... Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now at LinkedIn, and then we'll talk a little bit about your background hmm. um, too. Because I think people like to get to know where people came from and how they sure. got there.
2: The origin story. The
0: origin story. Actually, okay. let's start with that. Let's start with that. Since okay. I did meet you, were in Hollywood. You were working in Hollywood I was for, Terry for Sama. Warner Brothers, right? Uh,
2: Warner Brothers Online. I had started in the corporate development group there, September of 1994.
0: And why from college?
2: No, I had been in strategy consulting in Boston, and uh, I realized I didn't want to be. A professional consultant, and uh, I had gone to Wharton undergrad at the University of Pennsylvania, so uh, wasn't interested in going back for an MBA, and have uh, long been interested in the media world, and have uh, been interested in education, education reform for as long as I can remember. And uh, with the rise of digital technology, felt like media was going to play an increasingly important role in the way information was distributed, democratize access to information. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it
0: was me and Steve Case around at that time.
2: <laughs> well, ninety in '93, late '93, early '94, I was having a, a discussion with my dad about what I wanted to do next, and I was throwing out some ideas. And he said, "You know what? You should jot it down. And the clearer you can be, the better. And uh, you know, if you can be explicit about it, uh, we, you know, I think you'll be able to make it happen, and uh, we'll take it from there." And so I, I still have that. It was a mock cover letter I wrote my dad, and I said that. With the the rise of what was then called convergence, uh-huh. uh, digital and and media education, etc., uh, I thought it was going to completely change the way a number of industries uh, were actually manifesting themselves.
0: So, did you do that on a little typewriter?
2: <laughs> no, it was it was probably on a word processor, word processor, even back then.
0: But early, early.
2: It was early, yeah. And uh, in the in the in the cover letter. I mentioned that uh, I was of the belief that it was content that was increasingly going to determine where the value was created, not Mm -hmm. necessarily the technology in and of itself, that content would be the the differentiator, and that there were people who were overseeing media conglomerates, people at that time like Michael Eisner, uh, Steve Ross would have been a model, Ted Turner, uh, folks like Terry Simmel. And uh, I wrote to my dad that I, re- I realized how un- unlikely it was, but if I had an opportunity to work for someone like that, I'd be able to learn how they combine both uh, strong business acumen mm-hmm. and a sense of how to create content that people want to consume.
0: So you were a very directed young man at the time. Well,
2: uh, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because today when people ask me for advice, uh, especially like interns or new college grads, mm-hmm. Uh, And they'll say, what kind of advice would you have for someone who's embarking on their career and ultimately Mm -hmm. wants to be successful? Uh, I say it's going to sound obvious and maybe like an oversimplification, but it's true. It needs to start with understanding what it is you ultimately want to accomplish.
0: Gosh, someone just asked me that, and I told him to drink more and <laughs> have more sex. But that's just my advice. Well,
2: that, those would be two accomplishments. Those would be two accomplishments
0: well. for me. I did way too much work early on. So you came to Hollywood. You worked at Warner Brothers, which was doing a lot of really early stuff in the internet. They did. They had a lot of entertained them. Warner Brothers online oh, yes, I licensing them. relationship
2: with AOL. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: not a lot of success there, though, in that area. It was early, I guess. It w- I, I mean, for
2: uh, by comparison with some of the uh, activity at the other studios, it was fairly successful. Was. Warner Brothers Online was a break-even internet mm-hmm. uh, effort there's and your investment. Problem. Well, in retrospect, you know, it's interesting trying to – Limit yourself to innovate in an environment where you have to be break-even is going to be challenging. But back then, people didn't necessarily understand all the implications. And I think a lot of studios ended up throwing a lot of money away, uh, chasing various ideas. And that was the impetus for us to do the licensing deal with AOL, mm-hmm. which enabled us to generate uh, resources and capital that was invested into original programming, things like Right. So it was a, a really cool way to learn about the business. and And for me... Uh, that business plan, so I wrote the business plan for Warner Brothers Online in December of
0: 1994. So, like Jim Molishak,
3: right? Jim Molishak. Okay, I so that, Jim, just, that name yeah, just popped into yeah, my head. That's,
2: that's a very good memory. Yeah. So, uh, Jim wasn't involved yet. Um, that was the brainchild of the head of corporate development, a guy named mm-hmm. Stephen Coltai. And uh, Terry Semmel and Bob Daly ultimately approved that themselves. That's where they said, we're going to go with this. We had also looked at CD-ROM, mm-hmm. and they didn't want to do CD-ROM because of the inventory risk. Right. And I don't know if you remember this. I remember E T No, I'm saying the ET cartridge investment for Atari right. almost bought, brought Warner Communications yep. down. It, yep. was, uh, you know, it was a very painful experience for the studio. And so they were reluctant to invest in CD-ROM, but they approved the online piece as long as it would be self-funding. And uh, long story short, uh, mileshock eventually came on, and uh, he and myself and a guy named Jim Bannister uh, helped build uh, that division. And uh, we were there for many years, and it was uh, an amazing ride, and we saw the rise of the Internet. And at one point, um, Time Warner was thinking about spinning out its digital assets. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just us, CNN Interactive and Pathfinder. I don't know if you remember, yeah, I remember these, these are, We're going we way a lot back. a time with the founders. Oh, of course. There's a pony in there. Yeah. So, of course, you remember. So um, then AOL and Time Warner merged, and they said, we're not going to spin out any digital assets because we're now a digital company. And that was it.
0: And you were still there during the merger? No. No, we left before
2: left. it had closed. Right. And uh, that's when Terry uh, was leaving. Um, he, he and Bob had already announced that they were going to be reti- leaving and right. retiring from Warner Brothers, starting their next chapter. And then Terry started a private equity company, and he wanted to invest in media and digital.
0: And you went with him, and he asked a, a couple of us, Toby. myself and Toby. Yeah, right. some others. So an you, um, I know, I'm super old, although I look really fantastic. <laughs> um, so, um, so you then got up to Yahoo ultimately with him. Yeah, so started. so, and you were eventually head of media, correct? You were correct.
2: Well, when I started, it's a funny story. Um, we were in Terry's offices, and he said he got a call from Jerry Yang, and he was going to go up and visit Jerry in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Yahoo had just announced that they were going to be transitioning leadership and Tim Kugel was going to be leaving.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I said, Terry, you know. There's
0: a nice transitioning leadership. It, <laughs>
2: okay. Whatever. It, yeah, be, being compassionate. All right, okay. Uh, and uh, I said, Terry, you, uh, they may make you an offer to run Yahoo. It would be a really interesting fit because of your mm-hmm. media background where they're going to take the company. He said, no, 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 it's not going to happen. I said, I don't know. We'll see. He's like, no, Jerry and I met in Sun Valley and we're just reconnecting. Probably need some advice. So he flies up, flies back down, walks into the office, big smile on his face, says, you were right. I said, what do you mean? He said, they asked me if I want to be CEO. I was like, yeah, I knew it, I knew it. So let's get back to work. He said, no, no, I'm going to do it. Oh, wow. And I was like, what? He's like, I'm going to do it. And I was like, well, good luck with that. I'm going to stay here in sunny LA and Mm -hmm. keep doing what we're doing. And he said, no, it'll be an adventure. You'll take it one day at a time. And so Toby and I uh, came up. I still had uh, my apartment in Santa Monica. I didn't give it up. And day one... Jerry pulls Toby and I into a conference room and says, I don't know uh, about this idea that you uh, you guys are going to be Terry's, Terry's guys. You're going to need full-time jobs. You're going to need titles. Mm-hmm. And so from this point going forward, you're going to be running CorpDev. Oh, and that's how that that's all how started. That started. Wow. And then about a year and a half into that, uh, Dan Rosenzweig very persistently had been recruiting me to move into ops operations. Right. And uh, moved into operations, and over the years, one thing led
0: to another. Right. So, assess. I'm going to move forward directly to, to LinkedIn, but assess your time at Yahoo. How did you look at it then? Did you you missed you guys missed a lot of stuff, and then you also didn't miss a lot of stuff. You didn't miss Alibaba. You didn't miss a whole bunch of
2: 2001 to 2004 uh, were some pretty amazing times.
0: Right. Uh,
2: you know, the the internet industry had experienced a pretty sharp uh, correction, if not implosion, yes, in it did. 2000. In uh, uh, early 2001, and Yahoo was incredibly well positioned, which was one of the reasons I think Terry was attracted to the Opportunity right. Fellows. was an amazing brand, amazing asset, huge audience and reach. And uh, there were extraordinary people there.
0: Yep.
2: Uh, some of the most talented people I've ever worked with, and I mm-hmm. learned a ton from, and who've gone on to do amazing things. are now running things. other yeah. successful internet Rob Solomon, you know yeah. Rob Solomon. Yep, sure. uh, Rob Solomon uh, once said that Yahoo would emerge as... Uh, somewhat of an equivalent to GE in terms of the way it would yield a lot of future leaders. Yeah, just not at Yahoo. Well, it, it, didn't yeah, it didn't work out
0: that way. Yeah, it didn't work out that way. What do you? What did you – you guys didn't buy YouTube, for example. I remember yeah. you were in the running to do that mm-hmm. and others. Is there something you think you, if you would, could go back and redo there, what would you have redone?
2: Uh, I think YouTube would have been a yeah. very strong addition to, yeah. <laughs> to Yahoo. yeah. Uh, I think once it became clear that Google had reached escape velocity in terms of search, they had a multiple year head start in terms of trying to solve search. Uh, as a principal. and you had
0: to come in and fix that problem. I we
2: we recognized the what strategic importance. What
0: was it called? You're fixing it. There
2: event? was the algorithmic effort, which think mean, it had
0: a name. No,
2: you're thinking of Panama, which was the yeah. sponsored search piece right, of right. it. That was through the acquisition of Overture, right? But you had to came fix much it. later. You had to
0: fix the problem. We acquired
2: IncToMe too, right? And after acquiring IncToMe, we were actually able to launch an algorithmic search product that uh, was pretty high quality. We started yeah. to gain share. And then Google, in a brilliant move, which I think Sundar had something to do with in mm-hmm. retrospect, uh, and I know that Larry and Sergey were very focused on it. They did a distribution deal with Firefox mm-hmm. before anyone knew what Firefox yep, was. They did. And once the Firefox browser took off, it turned out putting a search box in the upper right hand corner of that browser was right. an incredibly powerful right. means of distribution. And that if your search quality, your algorithmic search quality, was anywhere close to parity, distribution made all the difference. Right. Because people were going to do what was frictionless.
0: Right. And also, and, Google was search on Yahoo. People forget that. And Google you was You guys gave on them Yahoo. their first Google million ser- customers. Thank Google, you very much. Google was search
2: on Yahoo way yeah. back in yeah. the days before I I remember got calling
0: Jerry and saying, get them off quickly. These are... Evil people from another planet. Well, they They're were going sure to kill smart. And, they are and, sure smart. So you you stayed at Yahoo for a while. You were in the media space. Um, uh, you were ultimately
2: media. it was Yahoo.com. So right. all the consumer products.
0: So w- what did you? What were you thinking at that time? And then what what made you leave and go to LinkedIn? What was the? I, well, mean, I didn't leave a Yahoo. I you didn't were leave a yeah. in the interim. Uh, I
2: was an executive in residence at Excel and Greylock on an interim basis. <laughs> Which
0: means what? You do snacks on Longsight on did <laughs> <a sand> Road. <laughs> do
2: snacks? <laughs>
0: Whatever. I don't, what do those people do?
2: Executive and residences, yeah. or or venture capital it's a lunch, partners.
0: right? It's, it's a lunch No, I'll tell you. I'll tell job. you I what like I did. Excited.
2: It was actually. It was. <laughs> that was it. It's on my LinkedIn profile. It says executive in residence did snacks from <laughs> did snacks. from snacks September of two thousand sure and eight to. Okay, when you thought I big thoughts. No. So very specifically, the role was designed to um, potentially find a vehicle, find a company, right. potential acquisition same. and investment right. that I could help run. Right. As opposed to an entrepreneur in residence, which is going to join a venture capital firm because they've got an idea they want to start. Right. And th- that firm may or may so not be So executive
0: for hire, hired gun.
2: To some extent. And, and the other thing that turned out to be really satisfying is you have an opportunity while you're there to work with portfolio company founders right. and CEOs. And because you're not a partner you're not on their board, uh, they're really very open, mm-hmm. sometimes more open than they would be with some of the partners. Right. And so those reminded me of product reviews which is one of the, my favorite parts of the job.
0: Right. So you were there for a short time, though. You weren't there for a it long time. It was just
2: several months. The, yeah. the other thing was evaluating investment opportunities. Right. And uh, so I officially started in that capacity in September 2008. And uh, the, the initial reason I left Yahoo in terms of timing was uh, the, the birth of our daughter. Right. So um, I went out on paternity leave and decided that would be a good time to transition. And uh, started in the the executive in residence role formally in September, and then within a couple of months, uh, a couple of the partners at Greylock mentioned that LinkedIn was thinking about making a leadership transition, ah, and yes. would I be interested in helping? The out? guy with
0: the Hawaiian shirt was out, right?
2: Uh, Dan Knight. Cool. Yeah, that guy. Did yeah. he wear Hawaiian yeah, shirts? Yeah, he did. Really? Yes. Huh. I don't see Dan as a Hawaiian shirt yeah, kind of guy. Work well okay. Him in lots of ways. So, By the way, did
0: you know I was actually on your first date? I was having dinner with Terry when you went on one of your first dates with your wife. Just really? Yes. A little historical. Uh,
2: you, were, you, were, you were with Terry kidding. when I – and he when was you saying were, yeah. I just introduced uh, these to you? No, you met her there. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. What's I took her to – there's a Spanish tapas place in the marina. I I said, you don't be an idiot.
0: She's fantastic. You were correct. Yes, exactly. And, and I was not an he idiot. I was just having a memory yeah. moment there. But let's get back to, to actual technology stuff. So, <laughs> you, um, so you were um, – you were there doing this. What attracted you to LinkedIn? Because it wasn't – I remember when I heard about it, I was like, what?
2: There was a few different things. Yeah. It was like so from business? the outside looking in, I probably had a somewhat similar perspective, which right, is way to get a job, yeah. um, a digital resume. Right. And then the more I started digging in and looking into it, you recognize the power of this as a platform mm-hmm. to enable capital, all mm-hmm. forms of capital eventually. Intellectual capital, working capital, human capital, which is – human capital is where the company's historically been focused – to flow to where it can best be leveraged. And that's the economic graph vision we have right now. And it's taken some time to get there. But you could see the basic building blocks. And put another way in the parlance of social platforms or social networks, if you think about Facebook as a social graph that connects friends and families and digitally maps those relationships, Twitter is an interest graph – LinkedIn was founded as a professional graph. Right. And it exactly. was created before those two.
0: But what attracted you? Because you literally you were a media guy. Like you were such a steeped in media and content and things like that. Now you have brought that to LinkedIn. Yeah. I mean
2: content plays a huge. But it was role. not
0: that then. It was no, not.
2: but you could see what would be possible if you were able to introduce content, professionally relevant content to people. And you know, as someone who had uh, for a while been interested in education reform, you realize when you're exposed to something like LinkedIn that providing people an education is only one part of the equation, only one half of the whole. Because if you're well-educated but there's no access to economic opportunity, it's incomplete. And I think what always uh, attracted me or drew me to education was this idea of not only democratizing access to information, but democratizing access to opportunity. So people who were deserving and willing to work hard and had the best ideas uh, would be able to, to do something with that. And so when you look at a platform like LinkedIn, you realize how unique it is in terms of its ability to scale. When I joined, we were 32 million members, and mm-hmm. today we've – And you it was largely
0: th- like resumes. It was like, we it, didn't the, have a lot of services were, hanging off of
2: it. Were, there were uh, – the establishment of profiles when people weren't actively looking for jobs, which was unusual, people updating their profile when they weren't actively looking mm-hmm. for a job. That's not how resumes work. The only time you dust it, off you your have, resume yeah, yeah. is it, when you're actively like looking. But essentially look like that, if I remember. But as a result of that, we were able to start this recruiter business which enabled passive candidate recruiting at scale. Mm-hmm. And that was in the very early days. So you could see the potential of that. And you could see the potential of what would be possible by virtue of connecting professionals and enabling them to build out their networks. And then all the good things that could result uh, on top of that. And that's where we've been able to, to take the company.
0: So talk about what you, you've done since then. I mean, you, you really have made it into a content. And this is your interest, obviously, content. But it's been a big focus of your acquisitions, uh, your lynda.com acquisition. It's mm. content. Um, Pulse. You added pulse, Mm -hmm. those guys are terrific, Um, but it's not what people would think of. Can you explain a little bit what you're trying to do there?
2: So uh, ultimately, our our core value proposition to members is to help connect them to opportunity, and we, we see that from the member perspective happening in one of three ways. First, we connect them to their professional worlds, and that's connecting you to the right people and helping you to build your network, keep up and keep in touch with the people that matter most to you professionally, that's about following the right companies, uh, providing access to the right job opportunities, providing access to investments if you're an entrepreneur, uh, providing access to prospects if you're a salesperson. I mean, you name it, as a, as a uh, journalist, uh, enabling you to research people, to do primary research.
0: It's called stalking, but go
2: ahead. <laughs> well, it's not just about the people. It's okay. also about the, the information and the content that's being shared. Right. So no, I get a
0: lot of information. I yeah, I, I think people I'll, I'll, leaving a
2: lot of journalists do. So that's this first component is connect to your professional world. The second is to stay informed through professional news and knowledge. And in order to enable people to be more productive, more successful, take advantage of those opportunities, regardless of how they're presented, you need to be equipped with the right information, especially in this day and age. And we realized early on that by virtue of understanding who people are connected to, uh, you could see what people were sharing in a professional context, and that was going to create value for others. And we took that a step further with the influencers platform. So we identified roughly right. 500 professional luminaries. And these were people who had a lot of experience, a lot of wisdom to share, who were very interested in sharing it. And, you know, at this point, we've got influencers like Richard Branson or Jack Welch, uh, Jim Kim. Uh, we've got prime ministers. Uh, it's amazing, Ariana Huffington. Angela Ahrens. And these folks are sharing content, Bill Gates. They're sharing posts and things that they've learned about becoming entrepreneurs, running companies, leading companies, uh, the most valuable lessons that they've learned. Some of these posts are read over a million times. Right. And they've generated millions of people following them. And this is very consistent with what we're trying to accomplish. That's the publishing platform, which has now been opened up. To well north of 200 million people, over a million people on a unique basis, a million individual posters of content on Which LinkedIn. Which they post about
0: things. All right, we're going to talk a little bit more about you all being a media company because mm-hmm. it's kind of not sure. orthogonal to people things. But for a quick break, I'm going to read an ad from our sponsor. If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries audiobooks in every genre imaginable, business, classics, history, and self-development, which is what Jeff is talking about right here, just to name a few. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership, just go to audible.com slash decode and choose from over 180,000 audio programs, download a title free, and start listening. I am personally right now listening to Ken It's one of Ken Follett's mega things and it's quite gripping. Right now I'm listening to Trouble in Nazi Germany. Go to audible.com slash decode. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today.
2: You prefer listening to a book or reading one?
0: I like listening to a book. Really? Yes.
2: You're not just saying that because you just do not have No, I like listening problem. to
0: everything. I like listening. I like podcasts too, by the way. Um, this is Jeff Weiner who I'm talking to. <laughs> Hello. I can't read anymore, by the way. I no. only can read in small bits. We can talk about the changing content. Um, we're talking about Jeff Weiner who's CEO of LinkedIn and also a, uh, someone I've known for a long time in Silicon Valley about where uh, things are going at LinkedIn and also media which is one of his greatest interests. He has turned LinkedIn in many ways into a media company. Do you consider it a media company no. or technology? What is it, a platform? I, no,
2: it's a platform. Platform. It's a platform. A sharing that can, platform? It's a platform that connects professionals, first okay. and foremost. And then what you can do by virtue of those connections and by virtue of people establishing who they are professionally, the mm-hmm. profile, That's those are the two keys. So back to the, the media discussion, uh, the publishing platform – and influencers specifically really demonstrated to us the demand for this—the fact that well,
0: people have always liked. I mean, how colors your parachute, the moving the cheese—you know—that's always been a really people big. They want to interest get better in, at what they do. They yeah. want to be great at what they yeah. do. And I they didn't want to never be inspired. read the book. I wouldn't listen to it either, by the way. <laughs> but you know, like I'm thinking of all the different. Yeah, but Robbins, not, it's
2: not—it's not, not just uh, self-help or, or, or growth well, books, books, development there's books. Been a lot of. Yeah, and there's grade. there's increasing demand for this mm-hmm. because people have access to it. And people are willing to share more. Right. So, and now you're able to connect directly with these folks. Is you that what
0: lynda.com is about? The idea of so, if being you think about what you do,
2: yeah, it's exactly what it's about. And if you think about a continuum, there's news, there's information, there's knowledge, which is information with greater context, and ultimately there's the acquisition of skills. Uh, when I say ultimately, if you're going along a traditional information retrieval continuum, the ultimate goal would be wisdom. But somewhere along the continuum between information, knowledge, potentially understanding, and wisdom is the acquisition of skills. And, you know, historically, we've talked about having access to data that would enable us to understand what skills you have, what opportunities you are interested in, the size of the gap, and then suggest that you acquire certain skills. And with the acquisition of Linda, we're now in a position where we not only understand what skills you need, but we can also help provide you the coursework to acquire that skill and we don't believe we're going to be able to provide every single course right. to every but it's single continuing skill. Education. Yeah, but th- 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 it's continuing Teachers education, do, right? yeah. but we'll also work with third parties too. This mm-hmm. this part of what we do will also be a platform, but Linda does what they do so well. Uh, We thought it was a fantastic fit. And then there's SlideShare. You were talking about Mm -hmm. acquisitions. You mentioned Linda, Pulse, Pulse the newsreader, Linda in terms of skills acquisition. SlideShare is a huge knowledge repository. So we have roughly 19 million presentations and videos. Mm -hmm. Virtually, you know, the vast majority of those are professionally relevant. Just announced uh, the other day, which you guys may have covered, uh, something called clipping, Mm -hmm. which is going to enable you to go into a specific presentation and highlight the most insightful parts of that presentation. So you don't have to sift through all of it. And then you can create your own repositories or compendiums of knowledge, and then you associate your identity with that.
0: So, to make something, you're trying to keep people on the platform rather than just job search and things like that, correct? You're trying to capture people's imaginations. Well, assume, we're, or we're actually
2: trying to deliver against value propositions. And you may say, yeah, yeah, that's going to be a bunch of business speak, but I think there's a really important. I hear the words. There's a really important distinction between trying to satisfy a business objective, like increasing engagement, and understanding who you're trying to create value for and creating that value for them. And I think historically, uh, we were too focused on trying to achieve uh, certain business objectives with regard to member growth or engagement. And those can be proxies for value that you're creating, but I think they should be outputs. I think they should be ways of measuring the extent to which you're creating value. And so... You know, We were just talking about uh, LinkedIn and our, our media offerings, and those are all oriented around the value proposition of staying informed through professional news and knowledge. Right. And so if we're delivering that, we may see greater engagement. I see what you, what you may mean. see greater but time want spent. more
0: people on the platform because more share, more do things like that.
2: Actually, what we want is to connect those people to opportunity. And if they're trying to get better at their jobs and we can help, that's good. And if they get a new job, that's even better. If they're looking for work, that's fantastic.
0: Because you're trying to get larger and larger community at some point. It at, creates sure. a better community. 380
2: million members right. today. Right. Uh, on our way, you know, there's 780 million professionals or knowledge workers in the world, 3 billion people in the global workforce. Mm-hmm. And as long as we continue to be thoughtful about the way we scale, I think there's greater value generated for the entire e- ecosystem but, with let's scale. Let's talk
0: about the bigger picture. I mean, just this week, Facebook announced a billion people using it on a daily basis. Yeah, it's a lot of daily big users. Big platform. That's, so, a, big that's platform. a big platform. That's a big platform. Um, becoming increasingly influential in media. Let's talk about the broader issue of media, hmm. where you see it right now. How do you look at uh, where that's ha- wh- what's happening? Who are the distributors now? You talked about, you know, Google getting that distribution deal yeah. and making its business upon it, uh, you know, or helping really uh, make it stronger. How do you look at that right now? How do you look at this? space?
2: So I think there's a few different ways to think about it. One is in terms of the distribution. The other is in terms of the relevancy. From a distribution perspective, we've certainly seen massive fragmentation to some extent away from visiting publisher sites or uh, watching certain networks to, uh, you know, trying to uh, consume that kind of content on uh, a complete ad hoc basis. So You want an article, you'll be able to get an article. You want a specific episode of something, you'll be able to get the specific episode. And increasingly, uh, that kind of content is being distributed uh, through search, through social platforms. uh, And there's less of that destination in terms of visiting a publisher as a destination. And I think that dynamic is going to continue. I I think that's a byproduct of the way relevancy has evolved over time. And I think in the digital universe, you have three drivers of relevancy. If it's not relevant, people aren't going to be interested in it, Mm -hmm. especially in a world of information overload. And in my opinion, the three drivers of relevancy are largely machine learning, uh, which is data optimization. And that was the Google model, the the search operating Mm -hmm. system, for lack of a better term. Um, Social cues. Uh, viral loops, what your friends think, what they're commenting on, what they're liking, what they're sharing. That's a social operating system. And then the media operating system, which is curated. And you have editors and you have influential people saying this is of interest. This is something you should be reading. Well, I think curation matters.
0: Curation does, but I think that it's hard to fight the machine. It does feel that way. Uh, I,
2: I would probably disagree. When you say harder to find the you machine. Want to be a
0: small, you know, like a very artisanal bakery in Brooklyn where everybody wants to eat. Well, like if all
2: you're doing is curating, I think that's the case. Okay. I think Jonah got this right uh, very early on with uh, the Huffington Post and then again at BuzzFeed. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could see in those early days at HuffPo, he was one of the earliest to recognize that these three approaches to relevancy don't need to be mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the digital universe has very quickly tried to catch up. And we now, you know, at LinkedIn, we've taken an approach that leverages all three from day one. That's why I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of the, the importance. Well, not you. just that, Dan Roth and his team. We have a small team of editors right. that will suggest, you know, this content in should be breaking news. Final. Yeah, he was an editor at Fortune. Right. He was at Wired. He's amazing at what he does, and that team, the digest that they're capable of creating, uh, I would stack that up against a, a machine-generated digest any given day because mm-hmm. there's there's elements of that, there's taste that's involved. Absolutely, that can't necessarily be captured in an algorithm. Not yet. I mean, it, with the rise of artificial intelligence, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Those days may be coming. But these things, Kara, they don't need to be mutually exclusive. If you can leverage the best of machine learning to provide editors a pool of content that they can then pick from, uh, that could be one way to gain an advantage.
0: So how do you have to look at media these days? Are you, are you worried for a, your Hollywood friends? You still have no, friends in Hollywood? No, uh,
2: to the contrary. The people creating content, there's never been...
0: Creating content. Yeah. But the way the studio system, in the old days where you Well, were, if you're talking
2: about distribution, yeah. you're talking about television networks, right. you're talking about the cable model in particular, yeah. I think the cable networks who are generating dual you know, revenue streams from both advertising and cable fees, I think that's going to that's going to go through some pretty dramatic transition. I think, you know, you're starting to see that right now. Um, certainly on Wall Street, there's some talk about uh, over the top and, and people uh, starting to to leave uh, their cable packages. Uh, the rise of Netflix has been extraordinary.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, uh, you know, leave it to read to be ahead of the entire game. And it's been fascinating to watch. As a consumer, I think it's fantastic. I mean, limitless choice, on demand at any time. Mm-hmm. I don't get watch point.
0: linear television for
2: a year now. Uh, live sporting events. I
0: don't watch sports. Okay, I that, know, I'm that, the only lesbian who doesn't that, watch sports. That would sample size. Sample size of telling one. You, I can't stand the,
2: uh, the the. I think live sporting events. I think anything that brings a community of people around their I television guess. sets.
0: Not news, breaking news. I guess breaking news. But not really. I get that on the internet. I get that reality on television
2: shows with major final only when events. I'm in
0: them. Only when I am in them. So no, no, not at all. It's really interesting, and my children, and you know, your Forget kids. Forget that. How old they don't know. The
2: they're seven and four. They're, yeah. they're not watching TV. No,
0: nothing's linear. Nothing. It's all on demand. It's all on demand. Or else, it's, they pull it. Themselves. That's right.
2: That's that ad hoc consumption. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. A lot of Vine watching. A lot of now Snapchat. I have a thirteen-year-old boy, and all he does is Snapchat girls. So that's what he does all day long, yeah. and that's entertainment to him. It's not, you know, it's a big joke. Ha ha. He's on Snapchat. But that's well, there's most there's the
2: Snapchat, time. the telling of the story himself, and connecting with his friends. Then there's Snapchat in terms of our story and the way in which they're collectively telling stories in that narrative across a gigantic audience. And what's interesting is, you know, the term MSO has always stood for multiple system operator, and those are the traditional cable companies that bring cable to tens of millions of homes. With Snapchat, you've got the rise of MSO, where it's a mobile system operator, and. Uh, it was really interesting to see Evan's initial uh, vision there because you could see a world where uh, individual networks start creating their own mm-hmm. positions within the Snapchat universe, right? And bringing content, introducing content into that story narrative.
0: Right. It's really interesting. It is absolutely, and and I think it's it's a question whether people are consuming them. My kid, my kid is definitely consuming that content right there, which is it's interesting. He knew some something show. about the presidential elections, which was shocking to me because he mostly knows about nothing nothing at all. And, yeah. I said, where did you get that? And he said, on the Daily Mail on Snapchat. And I was horrified. On the the Daily Mail channel on Snapchat? Yes. And I was like, oh, such a bad choice. (laughs) You know what I mean? I was like, oh, right. But you know, he had knowledge. And yet I wasn't liking that. But still, at the same time, he was consuming knowledge, which is interesting. So I want to do a couple more things before we finish. By the way, Uh, speaking of media, you you had some big news recently. Yes, I have. But we're not interviewing me today. No? No, not at all. I made the, an excellent choice, as you usual. Did. Yes, I did.
2: Box is fantastic, yeah, they as are. is Jim.
0: He is. They're fantastic. Your new media overlord. Enough of, yes, right. Yes. You think that really is someone going to be my overlord? No. Thank I, you.
2: No one is capable of being your overlord. All right, and then. And Jim's too nice a guy yes, anyway. Yes, he
0: is. Um, but uh, so let's talk about two things. One is China. Where yeah. LinkedIn does operate compared yes. to a lot of other internet companies, and the second thing I want you to do some predictifying of, okay. of companies and where they are very quickly. So yeah. let's let's talk about China for just a few minutes. We only have about five or six minutes left. Um, can you tell me what what what's your experience been there?
2: Yeah, so we're we're off to a pretty good start. It's it's a challenging environment and market for a Western company. Uh, it's incredibly competitive, very intense competitively. And uh, we were very fortunate to find uh, excellent partners uh, in CBC and Sequoia. Uh, we found uh, almost the perfect fit in terms of uh, the person running China for us, Derek Shen, uh, who heads up the joint venture. Uh, he built a very impressive team in a short period of time and we're, we're generating good traction. It's still very early days and uh, you know we're not kidding ourselves about the challenges ahead, but, Uh, When we first launched, uh, you know, we had been operating in English in China for the better part of 10 10 years or so. And uh, we were able to grow from 4 million to 8 million members uh, in, you know, roughly a year's time, less than a year, so we doubled that. And today we're north of 11 million, so we launched last February. And that's on the extension of our global platform in China, Simplified Chinese. Derek and team also have uh, recently launched uh, a standalone mobile-only app. Uh, which was uh, started from scratch. They were able to to go from a standing start to launch within roughly four months or less. And uh, that's been really impressive to watch. So
0: do you have to make too many compromises in China? Have you made too many compromises? We,
2: we've made one big compromise, and that's you know this notion of of at times, and it, thankfully, it's happened very infrequently. Uh, but having to alert a member that content that exists on their profile uh, needs to be removed, changed. Uh, you were
0: at Yahoo when that ha- when that bad yeah, thing happened. Yeah.
2: And it's, uh, it's not easy. And we were very thoughtful about this. We weren't kidding ourselves uh, before we entered. And uh, though we could not be stronger supporters of freedom of speech and – Uh, believe very strongly in the ability for people to be able to express themselves. We also recognize the value we can create in China for our Chinese members, for potential Chinese members, the value we can create on a global basis by connecting Chinese members to people around the world, given the size of the Chinese economy. And in order for us to be able to scale and create value for those members so that they can pursue the kinds of lives that they want to pursue, you've got to comply with the law in these markets.
0: Well, Some people aren't there. I mean, you don't have quite as controversial a company as, say, Twitter or Google. We're
2: focused on economic opportunity. We're focused on job creation. We're focused on connecting people to opportunities they wouldn't have otherwise. That's a very different context.
0: Where wouldn't you go?
2: Uh, In terms of geography, we wouldn't go anywhere in the world where we can't fulfill our mission and vision.
0: Around business, around Well,
2: it's not business so much. It's creating economic opportunity for people.
0: And to finish up, Jeff, let's talk a little about the state of Silicon Valley right now. Give me sort of a broad overview of what you think is happening here, the the positives and the negatives.
2: Well, from a positive perspective, you've got uh, the rise of a number of companies that, unlike 2000 and the late 90s, I think these companies are going to be around for a while. I think they're delivering serious value. I think they're achieving scale that was previously unimaginable. Facebook, you mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, uh, achieving a billion daily active uniques. Right. Uh, You know, you've got Airbnb, you've got Pinterest, just uh, all all these really interesting companies. Uber, Uber, which has the potential to completely alter infrastructure within cities. There's a lot of uh, interesting companies and where they could take those companies. You're calling them
0: sustainable companies.
2: Highly sustainable and massively scalable and massively disruptive. So I think that's one interesting trend. I think another is the byproduct of having a number of these companies in one locality and uh there's clearly a supply demand imbalance that's occurring on multiple fronts Uh, with regard to talent there's not enough technology talent to go around and uh we're seeing a skills gap not just in silicon valley but on a much broader basis given the demand for that kind of talent and i think that has major implications and uh, you know there's secular shifts that need to take place and uh, in terms of educating people on a generational basis so they can study programming. I think in real time, we need to do a better job of equipping people, workers today, with the skills they need.
0: You mentioned, at one point, the bubble. I'm not talking just about the valuation bubble, but the mental bubble here. Hmm. Do you think that it can continue to be the center of innovation or people sort of uh, you know, breathing their own fumes here? Do you have any – sometimes it feels a little – frothy in a way that's not necessarily just valuations.
2: Yeah, I don't know if that's froth so much as uh, a potential lack of perspective just by virtue of being in the same place, having the same conversations, being around the same people. And I think to the credit of a number of the founders and CEOs and leadership teams of these companies that we were just talking about, these, these companies now have massively global footprints and presence. And I, I think they do have an understanding of what it takes to to grow and serve a global audience. And I do think they're getting out there. And I do think they're increasingly thinking about the implications that their companies are having by virtue of achieving the scale that they're achieving. Now, that said, you take a uh, you take a, a city like San Francisco, and I'm surprised there hasn't been more research done on the implications of what's going on in terms of infrastructure, in terms of housing. Uh, in terms of people who are necessary to support a, a, a vibrant, dynamic community and yet can't very afford... very
0: have and have not sitting uh, yeah, really. The,
2: the socioeconomic stratification is becoming incredibly and intensively Extreme. You're
0: moving into San Francisco, right? You're building a giant tower. We're
2: we're going to be on uh, on on Second Street. Are and, you going to uh,
0: interact with the city? It looks like a, one of those giant towers that you sit in the sky. Well,
2: in. we're we're very much going to be a part of the city. Yeah, we, one of the things that um, we were thinking through is how we can establish an opportunity center on the ground floor, so that people want to come in. You can think Chops. of it like a modern day career a career center. Uh, but uh, you know, I think Mark Benioff and, and what Salesforce is doing in terms of Uh, reaching out to the community and understanding the the role that the company plays as a part of the community i think that's really important why
0: are you moving to san francisco why
2: we have a huge presence here already we already have two buildings uh we're we're growing at a pace where we're going to need additional space why
0: san francisco versus the valley
2: uh we have a big presence in the valley (laughs) so we're we're bimodal in that respect and um you know we've got a presence in mountain view sunnyvale and here in san francisco and uh a big presence in both, and I, th- I think that's where the talent is. You know, you don't want to necessarily limit yourself to one place or the other.
0: So to finish up, you know, when you were that 12-year-old writing out, or however old you were. 24. 24 writing out <laughs> what you wanted to be. would have been early. Yeah, I could see it, Jeff, somehow. I was
2: reading my dad's trade magazines from, he worked at I CBS. Bet, yeah. Variety and Hollywood Report. I, bet I was you were. a lot uh, younger yeah, than 12. Yeah, we like, were talking ratings.
0: A little, uh, you know,
2: Stogie? Stogie,
0: but, a, but a, gum a gum one. You know what I mean? I can see that. I do. Right? I didn't have the gum stuff. Wearing your little st- suit and tie and stuff. I can see it, Jeff. I no, can see there's
2: it. There's no suit and tie. It was not an Alex P. Keaton moment. You
0: and I think Cheryl Sam were born like, in little suits. <laughs> there's like no big cases. There was no suit. Uh, anyway, um, did you think you were going to run LinkedIn? Did this what you, or did you still running a big Hollywood studio? Or-
2: I, I didn't think of myself as running anything per se. I certainly didn't uh, aspire to be a CEO. Uh, I've never been title-driven. Uh, I've for the most part been purpose-driven and going all the way back to when I was younger and uh, You know probably 16 17 thinking about what it would take to help improve and reform education I've been very fortunate that I've had some understanding of what it was that I wanted to do and that's helped guide me but you know I remember having uh, believe it or not um, an argument I mean it was a silly argument But my dad and I had an argument after I left Yahoo about what I was gonna do next and he was saying I know what you're gonna do next I said what? He said, you're going to end up being a CEO. I said, no, I don't want to be a CEO. He Mm -hmm. said, you'll you'll see. You're going to be a CEO. than you. Well, wait. This went back and forth for like minutes. He's Mm -hmm. like, you're going to be. I was like, I don't want to be. My mom was like, would the two of you stop it? This is a ridiculous conversation. Yeah, it is. Sure enough, dad knew best.
0: Yeah, he did. Uh, What would you be if you weren't a CEO? What would you want to do if you could pick anything? Last question.
2: uh, Right now, I would want to take a page out of the code.org playbook. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way the Partovis are working on establishing uh, programming as being taught in every school in the country, I'd want to do the same thing for compassion.
0: Interesting. See, I want to sit on a beach. (laughs) Anyway, Jeff Wiener, thank you so much for talking to us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks a lot to Jeff Wiener of LinkedIn. And in keeping in the spirit of business and economic opportunity, uh, we're going to be talking today with Walt Mossberg about business apps on too embarrassed to ask. Today's too embarrassed to ask is brought to you by Audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com/decode. All right, let's start with too embarrassed to ask with Walt Mossberg. Welcome, Walt, who is coming to us on Skype.
1: Glad to be here, Kara, via Skype.
0: Yeah, we're going to be talking lots about business apps like Google Docs, Slack, and all this other software for worker bees. Um, it's, uh, it's gotten very popular. Like Slack, for example, and a lot of others have become almost like a consumer product.
1: Yeah, I think that what we see happening here is you know, for many years, everyone operated on Microsoft Office, which you bought in a box, or if you were a big company, you might buy a license for a lot of copies, and that included Outlook and uh, email. We all still, it's its ridiculous to pretend we don't use email, but we don't use it as much uh, as we used to. And now what we have is the rise of collaborative cloud-based apps. Uh, to be fair, I think Google was kind of the one that uh, uh, made the biggest uh, early dent in this with Google uh, Apps, Google Docs. They've changed the name a few times. And, and then we have these... Uh, group, team, collaboration, and conversation apps, uh, the leading one of which I think now is Slack. And um, so uh, this week, uh, I asked people on Twitter, did they think Google Apps could replace Microsoft Office – did they think Slack could replace email? And we got a pretty wide variety of responses.
0: Yeah, let me read some of them. Slack complements email, says David States, does not replace it within groups versus external communications. What do you think about that, Walt?
1: Well, I think he's right. I mean, uh, obviously, maybe they'll add a feature to Slack or something. But right now, uh, uh, as you know yourself, because we use Slack at, at Recode, um People uh, that you're trying to communicate with who don't work on your team or in your company, you have to use uh, email or text or some external form. But I also I also think this he's a little bit wrong in this in the sense that even internally, there are things you do. And even though there's a direct messaging feature in Slack, you still tend to take some things offline. and Sometimes Slack can be very uh, confusing, especially for having complicated discussion among a lot of people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But this person, Petri Okia, says, a Slack has replaced internal email. Excellent UI. Modern.
1: Well, it is modern, Kara. Uh, I, I, and I think there are a lot of good things about the UI. But the one glaring problem with the UI, which uh, you know that even our own folks and other people we know complain about, is there's no threading. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by threading is, if you're having a conversation about one topic... Threading allows you to see all the responses back and forth, people throwing ideas around or making decisions or assignments or whatever it is. The way Slack networks now without threading is topic A might be discussed for two or three exchanges, and then all of a sudden somebody brings up topic B, and then all of a sudden somebody brings up topic C, and then they go back to topic A. And And then there's a GIF
0: somewhere in there.
1: There's a gift, always a GIF. (laughs) Always a GIF. And lots of emojis, and it's hard to... Not those things, but it's it's just hard to follow, and threading Absolutely. would help.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the docs. We've got a lot of questions about docs. Uh, you're talking about whether Word got replaced. Word, perhaps, especially for collaboration. Excel, no way. It does isn't isn't in the same stratosphere for a power users like me. That's Andrew Lax. Same time, uh, Eric Disco says, hasn't Google tried to do this for many years already? Google Docs is dramatically underinvested, has not improved. And lastly, from Varun Duby, no, and maybe Google Docs sucks for anything other than real basics. Also, lack of offline means can't work on flight, etc.
1: Okay, so first of all, it is true that uh, Google Docs, which is kind of has, except for email, the same functional pieces as Microsoft Office. It has a word processor, it has a spreadsheet, it has a, a, a presentation app. Um, Is none of them have as many features as Microsoft Office, but that's kind of deliberate. I don't think Google is trying to match every feature. Uh, I know lots of young people uh, and others uh, who use it and don't miss the more sophisticated features uh, that uh, are in at least the WordPress or at least Word. But um, uh, he's right. He's a power user. If you're a power user of Excel, you're not going to be happy with the spreadsheets in in Google, but if you but most people are not power users, and I think the core functions are there. I don't agree that they haven't improved it. I think they've improved it a lot since I started using it, uh, you know, four or five years ago or well, whenever it, it it came out. Well,
0: one of the uh, people agrees with you. Microsoft Office is so twentieth century. Collaborative editing on Google Docs is awesome. Can turn telecon into real productivity.
1: It can, Kara. You can you can be in real time. Changing people's stories. No, you realize that. I do right? that
0: quietly at night by myself. <laughs> um, Tony,
1: sorry. Go ahead. Here's the, here's the irony Microsoft belatedly, which in fact, some ways ought to be their slogan, uh, Microsoft belatedly. Uh, Microsoft belatedly a couple of years ago <laughs> put up on That's online Typical versions. of you,
0: Microsoft, in a move that doesn't suck completely.
1: That <laughs> move that didn't suck completely. They put up online versions of Word and Excel and PowerPoint, and you can actually uh, uh, do collaborative editing with them. You can, they're free. You can store the you can store your stuff in OneDrive, which is which is their competitor to Google Drive. And um, but they never talk about it. They never publicize it. The world is. I mean, I, I think I wrote a review of it, but. And obviously, a few other people did, but um, I don't think most people know this exists. It's also true that the latest versions of Word and PowerPoint on your computer, whether it's Mac or PC, also allow collaborative uh, editing, mm-hmm. at least in some limited fashion. So it's not that Microsoft doesn't have this stuff, it's just that they are they're conflicted. It.
0: Well, here's a reason. They make a lot
1: of money. Selling the old stuff.
0: So here's a reason. Dennis M., in my experience, the biggest resistance to switching from Word were the secretaries who needed it on their resume. Is that what's stopping everything
1: along? I'm a little bit, I don't mean to insult Dennis M., but it seems a little bit,
0: teeny bit
1: sexist yeah, and classist. I agree. That on remark.
0: That. Well, I sort
1: mm-hmm. of winced when I saw that one.
0: So overall, you know, summing everything up, business apps are, are changing a lot. They've they become more consumer oriented. Really, they are. They're,
1: they're, they have. No, you're absolutely right, Kara. They, they. I, I think there's a, and, and, and we should note that um, Slack is on, you know, is on Android. It's on iOS. I get Slack notifications on my Apple Watch. You know, in the ten years ago, companies bought things and they stayed within the walls of the companies, and they were built for being within the walls of the companies. And I think your point is uh, oddly well taken. Thank you. Uh, these these apps are
0: Belatedly. built –
1: with a a consumer feel and a consumer point of view. And I think people are, you know, they might be using Snapchat or Facebook or something one minute, then they use Slack. It isn't that different. right? And uh, uh, I think that's a key part of this.
0: So summing it up, what would you see, what would you need to see change? Do you see anything else that's going to get innovation in the business app space?
1: Well, I don't know a lot about the apps that big corporations use, because as you know, I've always been Mm a more consumer-oriented writer. Uh, but I, I do think, uh, just logically, if you're taking in a lot of younger employees, millennials, n- digital natives, and you want them to feel comfortable, you're not – A, we already know you're not giving them a BlackBerry. You're going to give them an iPhone or an Android or something. Mm-hmm. You're not giving them a inch-and-a-half-thick, 18-pound Dell laptop, which 10 years ago you would have gotten. You're going to be allowed to use your – MacBook Air or whatever you prefer. And the same thing will be true with, with software used within companies. I think it, it has to emulate the most successful consumer software and mobile software.
0: Absolutely. You've got to listen to the millennials, apparently. Used to be the baby boomers. Now we have to listen to millennials all the time.
1: I know. It's so sad, Kara.
0: <laughs> anyway, so Walt, sad. thank you so much for being so businessy today. Are you wearing a suit and tie while you're doing this?
1: I'm wearing a T-shirt, actually. Uh. It says Mount Rainier on it.
0: Then you're a millennial. All right, Walt Mossberg, thank you so much for talking. We'll see you soon. See you soon. And now we're on to Enough Said. Today we're here to talk to Ina Fried again about the business of wearables, which will be one of the topics at the upcoming Code Mobile Conference in October in the San Francisco area. In the second quarter of this year, Apple sold 3.6 million Apple Watches, one of which I am wearing. That's a really good showing, but it's still not a ton. And they're the most impressive sale numbers there have been. But is Silicon Valley over on what they can deliver to consumers? And how about what they can deliver to investors? Here's Ina Freed to talk about it. Welcome, Ina.
3: Thank you. So
0: t- talk a little bit about the wearable sector right now. Where are we?
3: I think we're in one big beta test, really. I think we're still trying to figure out, the industry is trying to figure out what these are good for. And, you know, in, as with every early adopter product, there's a group of people that are willing to try that out, that want the latest and greatest, and are willing to basically figure out whether we've found something interesting. And I don't think we're quite there yet.
0: So we're guinea pigs, in other words. Yeah. I do feel like that. I feel like this watch is sort of, it doesn't quite, it's not quite there. It's not quite complete.
3: Well, I think we're in that early stage where people try and take the last technology and graft it into a new area. The first smartphones were basically a desktop computer, you know, strapped to a phone. These are a phone crammed onto your wrist. Or in the case of, you know, something like Fitbit, it's one or two pieces of data. I think we still haven't figured out what the wrist is uniquely useful for.
0: Or some other part of the
3: body. Or some other. I mean, I think the wrist, the ear... The glasses. I think there are different places we can get information. Mm-hmm. I think no one's quite sure yet what we want or how to do it. So,
0: what are we going to talk about? Who are we going to talk to at the conference to talk about where this is going?
3: So, we have a few different angles that we're taking this from. We have James Park, the CEO of Fitbit. They've clearly been the most successful. They're actually making money at it. Um, people really like their product. Don't always stick with it, but you know they've been generally well I think regarded.
0: They have Eighty-three Fitbits, but go ahead.
3: And that's the problem with the industry: is a lot of these end up in a oh, I drawer. Think it's
0: fine for them. I keep buying them. <laughs>
3: Um, so we're gonna be we're gonna be talking to them. We're gonna be talking to companies like AT and T that are trying to say, hey, these would be much better if they had another cellular modem in there. I'm not sure that's the answer, but it's an interesting question. You know, a lot of the devices today require you to have your phone with you. Is it better if it doesn't? Would you like your Apple Watch more if you could leave your phone at home? You can do that, but there's trade offs. Um, battery life gets even worse. You know, if you have to cram a whole cell phone's technology into there. Um, so there's a lot of needed experimentation and i think the other thing that we haven't yet gotten to is where these sensors can live on their own. Right now everything has to be its own unique device, but a lot of people are realizing maybe maybe it's just the sensor that needs to be there. Maybe you don't even need a wearable if you will, you just need the sensor to know how many steps you're taking and if you want to look at a screen that's what your phone's good at.
0: Right, so where would those sensors be? Like stick, stick-ons or
3: I think that's one one definite possibility is that mm-hmm. we're going to have a lot more sensors stuck to our body near our body in our cars um and they don't all need a screen, they don't all need a processor. Some will. And I think the wrist is a logical place to put some computing once we figure out what it's good at.
0: Has glass been a been a bust?
3: I think the instantiation of glass as a product has probably been doomed ever since Robert Scoble took it in the shower. Mm-hmm. I think the notion of eyewear as a place to get information probably has a place. It's probably somewhat limited, I think, for Factory workers, it's excellent. I think there might be a place for drivers. Audi tested this thing. Sorry, BMW Group with Mini tested this concept, you know, where when you're driving, you would get extra information, um, augmented reality. I think there's an opportunity there. I think certainly for gaming, virtual reality, there's a big thing. I think walking in the street, having a conversation, you know no offense to certain people who like to wear glasses that mm-hmm. you know create some distance between them and the people they're talking to. <laughs> but I think the average person doesn't want that in a conversation
0: I see so what about other parts of the feet that you're talking about, the ears the, is there just or or embedded into people, correct?
3: Yeah, embedded is one. Let's start with the ears for a sec, though. I think that's a really unique place because you actually can have something discreet there. So Motorola has a product called the Hint, which is essentially one of those Bluetooth earpieces, but they tried to do two things. Make it smaller so you don't look like a you know, jerk walking down the street talking to yourself. And then also add some intelligence. So it's not just carrying your call and answering the phone, but it's giving you some intelligence. I think if, you know, they could tell me, oh, I'm talking to Kara, you know, don't make sports metaphors while we're having this discussion, yep, that you. could be useful.
0: That would be very useful to me. Last question. Where's the? Where do you think the most far out thing is happening? Is there anything really far out in wearables?
3: I think the most interesting things are the medical applications. They're going to take the longest because you have to go through this rather arduous process of getting regulatory approval. But that's where the life-changing stuff. I mean, if you talk about what really powerfully can you do on the body, Mm -hmm. saving lives has got to be right near the top. So stuff in diabetes and chronic case management, stuff detecting a heart attack before you have one, that stuff is where the really profound change comes. But am I going to get my
0: bionic arm that I've been wanting since the bionic woman was on in the 1970s? That's what I want to
3: know. I think so. I mean, 3D-printed hands and stuff, I mean, that's already happening.
0: I want bionic, Ina. I want a bionic arm shown at this conference.
3: All right. Next, next week, we'll have bionic arms. <laughs>
0: All right. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Ina Fried. This has been Recode Decode with Kara Swisher. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please download it on iTunes and leave us a good review. A bad review? Maybe you can just forget. Next week, Peter Kafka will be doing the RedShare interview with Jonah Peretti, creator of BuzzFeed. He's the CEO and considered one of the smartest people to think about where content is going in the new economy.
1: This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes. Featuring candid conversations with leading voices like Snapchat CEO Evan Spiegel, Uber founder Travis Kalanick, reality star Kim Kardashian, Shark Tank host Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, President Obama, and more. They're all on Recode Replay. Thanks for tuning in.